Welcome, Karim Fazazi, paper of the month, prostate cancer legend. Um, Karim, do you want to introduce yourself uh, and then talk about your study, uh, Talapro 2, that you did with your colleagues uh, in prostate cancer that was published in Nature and Medicine, but more importantly, one paper of the month with your Amigos group. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Karim, far away, congratulations, of course. Maybe just talk about the study design to start with. And then after that, we're going to talk about why you chose Nature Medicine. And then, of course, we're going to go into a lot of detail about biomarkers. Far away. Sure. Happy to do so, Tom and, and Ryan. And uh, Happy New Year to, to you and to, to all your Omegas. Uh, so, so, you know, Talapro 2 is not uh, just one phase three trial uh, as it was kind of presented, but actually two different phase three trials asking the same question in two different populations. So the question is whether we should add a POP inhibitor, namely talazoparib to enzalutamide in men with MCRPC. First population is an old camera population, which was enrolled first. And there's an ongoing debate as to whether the data are good enough to justify use. But the second uh, population is a biomarker selected population of men with uh, DNA repair defect, uh, which was uh, uh, identified prospectively. And uh, actually, we enrolled 230 patients with those alterations after the old camera a population was was enrolled, so it's a quite large set of men, almost 400 men with who were biomarker positive who were randomizing the trial. So um, for this, Karim, before you go any further, can I, can I interrupt? So you've got this ITT population, then you've got this biomarker population. It's a pivotal randomized phase three, and you've done something a bit unusual in that you've sort of created two studies out of one. What is your alpha control? In that, how are you? Are you splitting alpha between the two arms? Are they both independent with alpha allocated at 0.05 of each, or is it one study with alpha moving between one one arm and the other? Um, how 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 do the how do the regulatory agencies look at this? Because if you say it's two studies but it's only one, do you get do you get double the statistical power? Do you get twice the number of chips at the at the roulette wheel? Or do you get the same number? Do you only get one? And, and if you get twice as many, are you cheating? <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I, so actually, the, the alpha was uh, 0.0125, if you will. So, uh, you know, just one sided. So, so well, 0.025 uh, if it's uh, two sided. So, so, in other words, we're not cheating at all. We're clearly splitting the alpha into two. Uh, different questions. So this is why I, I, I really believe that this was a, I mean, a robust phase three or actually two robust phase three, which were independent. So, so basically one could be positive and the other one could have been negative uh, and this would have still remained robust. And actually the two uh, questions are positive to address your question. That was my first interruption of 2024. One of my oh, New Year's resolutions. One of my New Year's resolutions. We're going to talk about resolutions at the end of this. We're going to have a resolution each. But one of mine was interrupt even more this year, Brian. Oh, please is it possible? Can you do that? One of mine um, is to prevent your interruption. So we'll see how that goes. Far away, Karim. Far away. <laughs> All right. So uh, anyway, so, so for this biomarker population, the trial is really clearly positive. 
where the graphic progression free survival was the primary endpoint. It's basically doubled, or at least the risk is reduced by more than half in the favoring, obviously, the, the experimental arm. Um, so for, for those, including myself, actually, who who are not, you know, who don't think that RPFS is enough in this disease to justify use in general, regardless of treatment. Actually, all uh, or probably almost all secondary endpoints were, were positive, uh, including weak ones such as time to PSA progressions, but also stronger one, including PFS2, and I think most importantly, quality of life, which is significantly improved. Uh, overall survival, as we speak, uh, is immature, but we really see a very, very nice trend appearing with already a higher ratio of 0.69. Uh, of course, because this is an interim uh, analysis, it's, this is not regarded as, um, as, as positive and, and final, but it really goes the, 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 the good way. So can, so can, I, can the, I press you one second mm-hmm. on the RPFS? I'm going to try and interrupt more. Tom and I are going to switch roles for 2024. But do you think, you, you said something there, I don't know if I caught it right, that you, you don't necessarily think that RPFS by itself is enough. Is it <clears throat> magnitude of RPFS? Is it RPFS plus other endpoints like quality of life or a, a very strong trend in OS? Is that correct? I mean, what do you think of RPFS as a standalone? Yeah, I, I actually I'm with you. I, I can probably buy the three, um, you know, RPFS plus you mentioned. Um, my preference is probably to get RPFS plus something else clinically related, such as quality of life, obviously overall survival, or or even you know if it's it may be time to pain deterioration or or or, or scattered related events, for example, you know. Or, all what making all the patients' lives miserable uh, when they have a disease. But, uh, and, and usually when you get that, you also have a, a quite large magnitude uh, in the RPFS difference. So, um, so it, it typically comes together. Um, but, but, you know, just you know, claiming victory based on RPFS, uh, significant with p-value of, of less than 0.05, but you know, have a ratio of 0.8 or something like that. Yeah. I mean, clinically, is not that meaningful to me. Uh, at the end of the day, we, it's it's just about an image, uh, and and sometimes you can you can simply have a bone scan switching from white to black because of you know my and and, and this is associated with with only minor clinical improvement. So I, at least personally, I don't want to see that. Yeah, Karim, does enough. everyone agree with you? Does everyone agree with you in the field, Karim? Oh, or? no, no, no. So some people uh, disagree with me, and which is totally fine. And, and this is actually why we, you know, within the community right now, we have a quite intense debate regarding the the benefit of, of the of the PARP inhibitor plus AR pathway inhibitor combo in patients without BRAC alterations or without DNA repair genes alterations. Because something is truly happening, but whether it's it's sufficient to justify use is really subject of debate. My my current answer with the currently available data is no, based on what I just said, because this is RPFS alone and not you know great um, uh, major difference in uh, in RPFS. 
but some others, some some of our colleagues, and including some some you know top you know top 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 um, world world class colleagues, think that this is sufficient, which I actually respect. Can I, Krim? Can I ask you a different question? And this is miles off piece, and I apologise to the listeners. There's a, a paper came out today, lutetium versus cabozatinib, uh, also showed no a randomised phase two study at Austria. I think it's called Therapy T. It was part of, published in the Lancet Oncology today, and it's in 250 patients. Um, there's no OS. Um, there was there's no difference, no difference at all in OS in that study. And we looked at that sort of PMSA four study before with lutetium as well. Early lutetium with the hazard ratio um, for OS that also wasn't significant. Do you? It, uh, what you, is what you're saying? Does that apply across the whole of prostate cancer? And does that mean that you're sceptical about lutetium because the rules apply like physics across all of the areas? Or is this only a, uh, a PARP inhibition issue for you? No, I, I mean, my, my RPFS comment is is a quite general one. Having said that, you, you really have to, to look at the detail of the uh, of, of a protocol and the and the trial. You know, for example, if you you know, taking your example of PSMA four, which obviously I'm biased, given I'm I'm involved, uh, I'm, I'm the I'm the chair of the trial. The you know, in this particular trial, this was a second trial. Uh, overall survival was already established in a first trial vision, and actually we made the decision to. Um, Number one, provide lutetium PSMA, or the company provided the, the lutetium PSMA as a crossover, which was massive in the trial, 84% or so. So you're really comparing lutetium PSMA today versus lutetium PSMA in five months' time, because this was basically the time it took for patients to, to develop cancer progression in the control arm. So in, in, you know, in that scenario, it's I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to, to demonstrate overall survival. So you have to look at other meaningful um, parameters to, to measure benefit to patient. And, and this is really, I think, where time to clinical deterioration, pain um, or opioid consumptions or SREs, you know, these things are clinically okay. important. So let uh, me push you on that a bit, if I may. So. Mm -hmm. In PMSA four, you could argue in vision, you can say you know late lutetium, good survival advantage, um, but the control arm wasn't fabulous. Some people believe, and in the randomised phase two, when they go against capazitaxel, where there was no OS, that's you know, some people feel capazitaxel would have been a better control arm. But but vision's a positive randomised phase three. It has OS, and I think people bought into that. With PMSA4, the earlier the earlier senescing, if patients are getting subsequent access to therapy, is it fair to say actually what that shows is it doesn't matter if you give it late, you can give it late and you can still salvage overall survival. So essentially, vision is a late trial which shows OS. PMSA4 an early trial with crossover, and what you're saying is you're rescuing the patients with crossover. And, uh, and, and that's why there's no OS advantage, and therefore it's okay to give lutetium late. In fact, it might be the better place for it. I think this would be a fair, you know, assessment of the data if there's nothing else but RPFS demonstrated in PSMA4. Uh, so, so in other words, if, if again, 
RPFS, the, the clear and major benefit of in RPFS demonstrated in the trial comes together with time to deterioration quality of life, all these things, even without OS. I think this would be a very reasonable um, measure telling me that we should use lutetium PSMA earlier rather than uh, later. Now, if not, I'm with you. I think it just means that we need to use that treatment sometime, but we, we may actually wait. Um, so so I, that I think is, is very important. Also, important is the population. In PSMA4, we actually selected patients who had, I mean, mostly, I, I should not say indolent disease, but not very aggressive disease, clearly. Only 3% liver metastasis were, uh, rate, for example, in the control arm. And, um, and, and, and this is really because the control arm wouldn't allow for the stack cell use. So, so we, I think doctors did their job. If they had a patient who was, uh, who was symptomatic, they, they just did not include him in the in the trial and treat him outside the trial with dostaxel, which was totally fair and respectable. Uh, but but this means that the population in PSMA4 is actually probably more indolent as compared to the general population of MCRPC progressing after an AR pathway inhibitor. So I think like all, like all therapies, <clears throat> individual patients are going to need individual timing of treatments. And, and I think when we try to lump and make big statements, we get into trouble, right? We also haven't seen the full data from PSMA4, right? The mature survival, et cetera. But I think it creates an interesting discussion, as Tom alludes to, about the timing and are some things better early and maybe some things better later. I think that's, to me, the unanswered question. I fully agree. And I'm not sure which paper we're still talking about. Well, we're talking now. We've we've awarded another paper of the month in the same podcast. (laughs) We've not done this before, Kareem. You know, you've got two papers of the month there. Um, Let's go back to Telepro 2. Um, So we've got the two trials. You've got one study where you've got the hazard ratio of OS, which is training the right way. You're really happy with that. You've got the biomarker selected trial and you've got the biomarker unselected study. You've discussed one of the trials. Do you want to discuss the other study now as well? Well, you, you know, I think first, I, 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 if you don't mind, I, I'd like to speak about biomarker because this is, this was also, you know, a, a subject of a nature medicine paper. Um, I think we've learned uh, with this trial and we really keep learning. And this is really because these uh, alterations are rare. So, so you really need many trials to, to, to get a bit better picture. So for example, of co- obviously we, we already knew that patients with bracket two alterations would very likely benefit. And, and this was clearly the case. The benefit is really enormous. The hazard ratio is less than 0.2. But the good news is that uh, Patients with BRCA1 alterations also appear to clearly benefit from from the combo. The hazard ratio is very similar uh, with uh, with 0.17. And actually, I've heard in the past some some debates about patients with with BRCA1 alterations and whether they would benefit or not from POP inhibition. And, And this was based on you know, just a digit of, of, of patients and, and because they are rare. And uh, and we, I mean, some colleagues were, were having a hard time being convinced with the data, but I think with, with more patients, data are, 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 getting, are getting clearer. So, so that's great for these men. 
Uh, also, uh, you know, on the, let's call it the bad way, or the bad sides, uh, it appears that patients with ATM are confirmed not to get benefit from PARP inhibition, at least for most of them. ATM is a long gene, and actually there might be some rare alterations that uh, predict for benefit, but we, we, we still need to do all the homework to identify who they are. But for most patients, a PARP inhibitor just don't work. And this also applies to, to patients with CHEC2, for example. And But on the other hand, and finally, uh, patients with CDK12, and this is not very rare in prostate cancer, it's about 7% of the total, uh, those patients in Talapro2 appeared also to derive benefit from the combo with a hazard ratio of 0.5 approximately, which is really not bad. Uh, I'd love to see confirmation for that because this is um, you know, usually aggressive cancer. So, so if, it's, if it's not a false positive, that'd be, that'd be great for patients. So you, you see, yeah. I was just going to ask, in practice, are you drilling down to those individual mutations and treating or not based on it? So you would not give this combo to an ATM, where of course you'd give it to BRCA or, or the other more susceptible. I, I'm actually following the evidence, to be honest. I'm, you know, in my practice, I'm treating my patients with uh, BRCA one or BRCA two alterations with PARP inhibitors alone or in combination. Um, CDK12, I I would tend to give it a try. Uh, again, also because, you know, either sooner or later, um, because we, you know, these cancers are so aggressive. Uh, for ATM patients, I, I've stopped treating these patients with PARP inhibitors for for some month or years now because really we we, we uh, trial after trial we don't see uh, okay okay Karim so um, the alpha allocation was to the HRR population, not the BRCA population. Is that correct? Um, that's correct, absolutely. So all, so, all the hazard ratios that I'm providing. Are yeah. obviously exploratory. So what you're essentially doing is you're saying, I've done this big randomized phase three. I loved it. I, we talked about alpha at the beginning, and you said, you know, you're not cheating with the old uh, with the chips. You got the chips, but in the end, which I agree with, by the way, but in the end, you're actually not. You're you're, you're kind of ignoring the, the the statistical power, and you're moving towards your gut feel. Now, what you're saying is that gut feel is not a gut feel. That gut feel is driven by what is a meta-analysis of the other data from other trials. So I guess there is a letter of the law, and you're not obeying the letter of the law, the letter of the law at the HRR population, and there's a spirit of the law, which you're saying, actually, I'm looking at this study and other trials, and I, um, and therefore, I guess you're saying, uh, you believe that the all of the PARP inhibitors are essentially doing the same thing, because some people believe they're different in some trials and some and some are, and some populations are better than others because the drugs are different. So is, am I right? Is it that you're looking at the, the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law? And that's why you're not pursuing in your clinical practice the statistical analysis plan of the trial. You, you're actually right. I mean, and, and I'm doing that, well, for several reasons. One is that it's almost impossible to conduct one trial for only you know one of these uh, genetic alterations. They're, they're just too rare to do so. Uh, it's, it's really almost impossible. Even bracket two would, would, would be hard to do. So, so you, you really have to 
to do a kind of meta analysis. Having said that, I, I'm trying to be, you know, as scientist as I can in the way that you're right, there might be some differences between PARP inhibitors. So, so even if, if you're pulling the data together, kind of, you, you still need to be cautious uh, doing so. And, um, and again, we, 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 we are learning. Uh, but but I think there is no other way to, or I, at least I don't see one, uh, to to take this data for a practice. You know, j just you know, using a trial, pulling together all HR or DDR alterations together, and saying yes, the trial is positive. I'm going to treat all my patients this way. I, I I just don't think it's appropriate. That's that's kind of too easy. We we. We, we know that these alterations are just not made equal. Uh, we're pulling them together because otherwise we would not be able to conduct trials, but we, we still need to look at the data a very critical critic way. So, um, so yes, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I agree. I mean, when you get down into small subsets, you're never going to have power, right? So you do have to take a little bit of a leap. But as you say, the, the message is pretty consistent across studies about ATM or, or BRCA or whatever. My question is around, are there any patients in which you're using PARP inhibition monotherapy? So metastatic CRPC, take whatever mutation you'd like, a mutation you're going to give PARP inhibition to. And are there any, are there any patient subsets where you would just give BRCA, in, uh, excuse me, PARP inhibition alone? Um, or are you giving everybody the combo based on the data? Actually, in most patients I'm treating in the in the routine practice, I'm using a pop inhibitor single agent, and this is because, you know, we, we we've moved away from using AR pathway inhibitors in MCRPC simply because we're using these drugs earlier in the course of the disease now. So when the patients progress to MCRPC, they have already exhausted them. So. So if this gentleman is, is a, for example, a BRCA patient, I, I would consider a pop inhibitor alone. I would probably typically not switch abiraterin to enzalutamide or vice versa, or even with apalutamide or dalalutamide. Typically, it doesn't work. Um, but again, recognizing that this is because in all our countries, we can use AR pathway inhibitor earlier in the course of a disease based on evidence and, and a much greater benefit for patients. So this, this is my practice, uh, Brian. Um, give us a quick clue. What has the EMA and the FDA said about the Clafrid trial? Do we, have they made a decision yet? And what, what label have they given? Well, I, I think they, they want to restrict the, the use to, to BRCA uh, patients or to DDR patients in general, because I think the, the FDA uh, wants to, you know, recognize that the data is not sufficiently convincing in terms of efficacy for non-DDR patients. And on the other hand, they also recognize, and I think they're right to do so, that, you know, these drugs do not come without toxicity. Uh, you know, we're speaking about 20, 30, 40 percent transfusion rates in these phase three trials, so, which, which again, it, I mean, has, you, you know, some, I mean, those are clear issues clinically. It comes with significant fatigue. It comes with cost. Patients have to come to the hospital and everything. 
So, so, so I, due to that, the FDA uh, actually decided for for both trials, Propel and Telepro two, to restrict the indication, which I think is fair. Uh, it doesn't mean that with longer follow up, they may not revisit their decision. Uh, we we're still waiting, as we, as we said, for a long term of our survival assessment and some other important um, secondary endpoints. And I think the agencies are, are still open to to look at uh, this data when they're available. Am I am I right in thinking that the, the alaparib is um, is restricted to just patients with BRCA mutations, despite the trial not pursuing that population, and then looking for a, a wider ITT population, while as tazaparib is a, is actually a pro, pro approved in the HRR population. So it is in the US a broader population, and the FDA has gone in two different routes with these two different data sets. How can they have come to that conclusion in view of what we've said so far? Well, I, I think, you know, again, I, I was not a proper investigator and I haven't seen the the rough data uh, as opposed to the FDA, obviously. But, you know, what, one important difference was that in Telepro 2, the, um, the adjudication for biomarker was made a prompt. Uh, so it's, it was a prospective assessment, uh, which was not the case in um, in Propel. Patients were randomized before um, the, the, the biomarker was assessed, and, and 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 in those situations, sometimes you have issues with biomarker assessments. So um, so that could well be a, a reason why uh, the FDA made a, a slightly different de decision. Also, you know, again, hard to compare trials, but but the magnitude of the benefit appears to be made, uh, perhaps greater in Telepro 2, again, with all caveats with uh, cross-trial comparisons. And Brian, let me ask you a question if I may, Brian. George III, George III there was uh -oh. that big war of independence uh, in America, big mistake, <laughs> as you know. France and the US ganged up against the UK, very unfair in my opinion. Uh, and during that big mistake, uh, you went your own way in the United States um, with the support of France. Tell me, do you think Karim is right? Do you think the FDA has got this right in that they've assessed these two drugs slightly differently? They've got different labels, although, as Karim has said before, he's not convinced by the HRR population. What is the justification for the FDA going in these two different directions? And how do you explain that to clinicians and patients? I'm not sure what this has to do with the War of Independence, but we're on this side, we're extremely happy, Tom. And Karim, we appreciate France's support in this. Um, <laughs> I think the I think the agency FDA was reacting to the data and the trial design, right? And so, you know, the the trials were different. Yeah, they were PARP inhibitor plus hormone therapy, but it but they were very different, obviously, in the prospective allocation and the retrospective. And the biggest issue for Propel for for ODAC and FDA was was the contamination, if you will, of this unknown. There was a large, I think it was 35% who had um, like unknown tissue status, you know, so there was a, a there was uncertainty and FDA does not like uncertainty. And so they went with what they were certain about, and that was BRCA. Whereas in Talipro, because of the prospective assessment, there was more certainty, even if within that HRR non-BRCA subset, there's some differences as we talked about, you know, there was much less uncertainty. So I think, you know, they were just reacting to the, the way the trial was designed and it, it shows that trial design matters, right? I mean, that's I the agree. lesson. I agree. It matters I agree. a lot. 
especially with biomarker assessment. That's a prospective that needs to be done prospectively, not retrospectively. So my follow up question to Kareem is, do you think the, the specific PARP inhibitor matters and or the specific partner matters or is it just trial design? Is it just, you know, for these, if, I know we're comparing across trials, but is it just trial design or could there be differences in PARP inhibitors and or differences in partners that it might account for some of the, the clinical results? I would say both. I think, you know, trial design are important and um, and drugs are maybe different. It's and we've learned this, you know, in the past. I mean, carboplatin is not cisplatin, and there are many other examples of similar drugs which do not behave biologically exactly the same. Um, again, we're learning. You know, when we when we did the, the, the phase two trials of talazoparib, olaparib, niraparib, rucaparib, you know, data were quite similar, if you will. At least the, the trend was similar. Um, trending for for efficacy, at least in men with BRCA alterations. But with larger experiences, it appears that there may be some, some difference. And the Raparib was also tested randomly, but the data are probably less convincing, maybe because the dose which was chosen is, is different and there was toxicity. I, of course, it's, it's really hard to, to interpret. Karim, what's your, which, which drug do you pick? You've got, let's say you have access to all of the drugs You've talked about the biomarker population, particularly the BRCA population. Which drug do you pick for your patients? Well, you know, as, as for all of us, this is also based on approval and reimbursement. Um, you know, I've been using myself these four PARP inhibitors. Uh, I think telazoparib, again, a bit it's hard to say, but telazoparib might have more efficacy slash more toxicity. Uh, but again, with all caveats, without direct randomization. Um, recovery, but I, I think this is really a really too bad that uh, that the, the, the company uh, had uh, you know bankrupt. Um, it, it was you know it, it, it still can be developed by by a generic company. We'll, we'll see how it goes because the, the data were good. Karim, is it, fair, is it fair to say, is it fair to say that there are more similarities, in your opinion, there are more similarities and differences between the drugs? The biomarker yes. is more important in terms of selection and actually experience of how to use the drug and the toxicity. We in, like we in kidney cancer, we say pick one and use it well. And does the same apply in, in, in prostate cancer? I think so. With regards to these four POP inhibitors, my answer would be definitely yes. They, they all appear to work. Maybe not exactly the same degree, but really hard to say. But you're you're very right, Tom. I mean, you know, people need to to know how to deal with at least one of these drugs and and their and their safety, and um and and then use them. I fully agree with you. But the biology is probably much more important. So, Kareem, where do where does this field of PARP inhibition go from here? Is it just moving it earlier? Is it more sophisticated? you know, methodology around the biomarkers? Is it triplet therapy? I mean, we've, we've sort of beaten this horse of BRCA versus HRR versus non, and I think we kind of are where we are. I don't know that there's any more big data forthcoming right in this space, but but where is it going from here? How do we how do we get smarter about how to use these drugs? I think there are three major ways. 
Uh, as you rightly say, one is, is obvious, uh, and that's earlier use, at least for BRCA patients. Um, but also, this probably comes with different questions, which is what is the right balance between efficacy and safety when you're using uh, those drugs earlier? Do you really need to use them continuously? Can you stop after one year, two years? Um, especially you know, in, in metastatic cash incentive where, where patients can live without progression for you know, you know, five years, six years, you know, very long. So, um, so that's a key question, and, and trials are actually addressing those questions, uh, and, and they're, they're maturing as we're speaking. Second is, is maybe for once, <laughs> try to, smart, to, to find a smart combination, and I think smart combination could be with uh, um, other ways or other means that targeting the DNA. Um, radiation or radioisotopes uh, obviously come to my, to my mind. We, we just saw the first phase one trial of lutetium PSMA with a PARP inhibitor. We, we obviously need more data, but that at least makes a lot of sense, especially again in, in, in patients with BRCA alterations. And, uh, and the third you know, focus should probably be about better understanding why, even with a current biomarker assessment, um, patients, you know, let's let's take the, the one who probably benefit most, BRCA2, why these patients have just maybe a half a chance of benefiting, uh, why the other half just don't benefit at all. We, I think we don't really understand why this is the case. Uh, it appears that deletion predict much more for benefit as compared to mutations, uh, but we, we, we need more. And ideally, I'd love to see a functional test, not, not necessarily a genetic test. Um, that, that would really be ideal. So, and, and this may also help us to tease out who amongst the so-called all-camera patients may actually benefit from, from this treatment or, or, or those combos. So, so you see lots of homework to do in the coming yeah. years. Karim, my last question to both of you, in fact, what is your New Year's resolution? Uh, oh, Brian first. <laughs> uh, my New Year's resolution. Um, I give you, do you want me to give you mine first? Yeah, go ahead, Tom. I yeah, think. so I'm thinking maybe not stopping at red traffic lights when it's raining. <laughs> that was my idea. Mine is to yeah have you interrupt me less or our guests less on these podcasts that's uh, very and probably to get, him, get back in shape. Maybe that's my, my actual yeah. resolution. And Fazim, what are you looking forward to in 2024? Wow, hard to say. Uh, I, I guess, you know, finding the, the right balance between uh, still loving the, the work we're doing and, uh, you know, still finding the time for, for something else. Um, in this planet. So well, you're very planet. lucky living in beautiful France. There's so many beautiful things you can do in that amazing country. You're very, you're very blessed. Grim, <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us today. Really interesting. Uh, I thought, I thought really interesting uh, discussion. Congratulations on your magic nature medicine paper. Extremely difficult to do. Uh, we're going to see each other soon. I'm looking forward to seeing your ASCO GU. Thanks, Karim. Thank you, Tom and Brian. See you in San Francisco. Thanks a lot. Okay. Sounds good. Hey, Karim, that was fabulous. Congratulations on your paper. Yeah, thank you. I, 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 I thought it was terrific. I thought your, your comments were really interesting. I thought it was really good, really good. I had fun. That was cool. All right.
Yeah, thanks, really all. Thanks a lot. Cheers and bye.